Welcome to the Vibe Within podcast. I'm your host, Gab Cohen. Each week, we will connect through stories and conversations about wellness, yoga, addictions, spirituality, mental health, rituals, and everything in between. The goal is to transform our traumas into strengths to create the change we desire in our lives. My mission is to help others by shining awareness on real-life topics so we can learn new ways to heal physically, emotionally, and spiritually. Whatever you are going through in this moment, you are not alone, so let's connect and heal our vibe within. Welcome back to the Vibe Within Podcast. I'm your host, Gab Cohen, and today we have a really awesome interview with Lyle McDonald. Lyle is pretty much the OG of body composition. He's one of the most renowned and well-known researchers in fitness and bodybuilding and biology when it comes to the body and Uh, He has written hundreds and hundreds of papers and studies, and uh, he's also been on probably over like 200 podcasts. I've listened to a lot of podcasts with him, and uh, I honestly just love his energy and how truthful and honest and raw he is. Um, So in this episode, we talk about PCOS, we talk about body recomposition from a female perspective. He talks about, you know, the do's and don'ts when it comes to really wanting to change your body, fat loss, getting stronger. We talk a lot about healing autoimmune issues and hormonal imbalances and amenorrhea and period problems. Um, So I think that this episode will have a lot um, to offer you guys. And even if you're not a woman or you don't identify as a woman, this episode is really still going to give you a lot of information about working out, about changing the body, about building muscle, about losing fat. He is the body recomposition guy. His website is bodyrecomposition.com. And uh, he knows what the fuck he's talking about. He is, you know, one of the most respected researchers and writers in this field and he's written tons and tons of books and uh, the book that we do talk about more in this episode is his his women's book where he breaks down all things PCOS hormonal imbalance and how women can really get through these just fucked up scenarios that we can put ourselves in with metabolic damage and working out too much and Um, the nervous system just going haywire. So I hope you guys enjoy this episode. I know that I did. I loved every minute sitting down with him. Um, It's a bit of a longer episode because he is just a well of knowledge and he was really nice enough to um, offer all of this wisdom for you guys. So if you want to check out Lyle, I will put his website in the show notes or you can follow him on Instagram and um, I hope you guys are all doing okay. I will update you with uh, some stuff that's going on in my life, maybe in the next intro for the next episode. 
but until then enjoy this episode and we will connect soon so i'm here with lyle i'm super excited about this uh podcast i i feel like i know you lyle but you don't know me because i've listened to like probably a hundred hours of podcasts of you already. And I was like, why don't I just have him on my podcast? Because I have so many questions. You are literally the body, body recomp dude. You are, you know, you've written hundreds and hundreds of articles and several books and you've written about um, PCOS and hormones and women's recomp and fitness and health. And I'm just super stoked to have you. Cool. Thank you for having me. So I wanted to kind of hit off the conversation with basically just diving right into women. I'm, we're going to focus on women today, um, people, sure. women who have PCOS, hormonal issues, who really want to recomp their body and get different results, who are feeling yeah. like they're on that never-ending treadmill of doing the same fucking <laughs> shit over and over again, expecting right. different results, which is insanity. So let's let's yep. hit it off with... What are like the three or four or five things you think women are doing wrong so that they can understand what they're doing wrong so then we can move into yeah. what to do? So some of this may may reflect my age and that a lot of what I will probably say is much more what went on traditionally, right? Like I've watched this develop since uh, the 90s when I started doing this professionally. And certainly at that point, the standard approach for women was to do endless cardio, was to reduce fat as much as possible. Women have frequently not eaten much dietary protein. If they did resistance training, it was sort of, you know, fooling around with very light weights and endless reps to, to tone or whatever you want to do and really getting nowhere. I mean, and they would just do this for months and, and because that's just how you did. I mean, prior to that, it was starve yourself as long as you could. Um, and that's also frequently part of it. The, the logic is obviously, well, if some calorie restriction is good, well, then more must be better. And I think you do you do still see that. I, I think it's getting better. Certainly, I, it's been really interesting for me to watch the change in a lot of this. Um, some of which is, you know, or a lot of which is due to social media, which has certainly had both good and bad influences. There's still tremendous amounts of bad information. But I do think in the modern era, more women are cued into or clued into heavier resistance training, not doing a million hours, you know, two hours of cardio. I used to watch women do an hour on the Stairmaster before going to an aerobics class. And like that was just common. Mm. And you didn't see women in the weight room in the 90s or maybe a few. Whereas now it's half and half. I mean, even in sports like powerlifting and Olympic lifting, it's gone from a couple of women to their, their federations in Texas having women's only meets. So I think there there has been a shift, but I still think there there's a lot of misinformation out there. Um, and you do still see that problem. You see the women going, all right, I've done two hours of cardio a day. I'm eating or trying to eat 800 calories. Mm-hmm. And I'm avoiding protein because protein is what builds muscles. And I don't want, I don't want muscles and fat makes fat. So they're eating almost, you know, I, I've seen women eating literally 80% carbohydrates. I, I don't know if you consult with people or coach people, but I'm sure you've seen that too. If they're resistance training, it's not really pushing themselves and they get nowhere. And then you, when you can get them buy in, can get them to buy into 
increasing their dietary protein. Well, their appetite invariably gets better. Their blood sugar gets more stable. Moderate their dietary fats. Moderate their carbohydrates. Get them to raise their calories. And, and I, I want to touch on, you know, I, I'm not saying there's metabolic damage, but women's bodies do adapt mm -hmm. to low calories a lot harder than men. And that's something we might talk when we talk about like yeah. talk about menstrual cycle dysfunction and things of that nature. Also, you just get tired, right? If you're doing two hours of cardio a day and trying to eat 100 calories, I don't care how much you're burning during the cardio, you are sitting down for the remainder of the day because you're exhausted. And frequently you will see that as you bring calories up, A, you probably train more intensely, so calorie expenditure goes up. Um, that spontaneous activity, NEAT, you know, non-exercise activity, will go up. And there can be hormonal adaptations to very low calorie intakes that are reversed. So you frequently, at least, if you don't see better fat loss at higher calories, you find that women who felt like they were maintaining at 1,000 are now still maintaining at 1,800, which seems like a thermodynamic miracle. But what's happening is that the calorie out, the energy outside of the equation is able to adapt, not adapt, but go up. Because, again, you're just not exhausted all the time. And there are other things. I don't know if you, how deep you want me to get into the physiology of a lot of this. But I've seen so many women that they're like, yep, as soon as I started doing really intense resistance training. And by that, I don't mean, you know, powerlifting training. I mean just pushing themselves. Mm -hmm. Where a set of 15 rather than, you know, who is that famous trainer who told women not to lift more than three pounds because oh they would get bulky as years ago, some celebrity trainer and start pushing themselves, whether it's in eights or 15s or whatever, mm -hmm. cut the cardio back and they'll see more results in two months than they saw in two years. Yeah. And their joints don't hurt and they're not exhausted all the time. And there's a bunch of underlying physiology that, that again, I can go into if you want to, and it's not really that relevant, but it's that it's that cluster of behaviors. It's avoiding protein, which again, I think in the aggregate, we're getting away from that. I think we've finally, women have finally started to more recognize the role of protein in the diet. Yeah. Getting away from these extremely low fat diets tend to leave people hungry. There's also something that happens that you see a lot where people target these very low calorie intakes. Because again, lower is better, right? Except when it's not. Except when and your metabolism gets fucked. Well, there's that, but you also, what you tend to see is, all right, I'm doing 800, I'm doing 800, and then they roll off the rails, and they have 2,000. Mm -hmm. And if you look at it over the course of a week, they're targeting this, but they're really getting this because of their losing. Whereas if you now bring them to a more moderate calorie level, right. they can actually adhere to it. Mm -hmm. And they end up, uh, you know, contradictorily to some degree having a more consistent deficit. Women have an additional issue, which ties into menstrual cycle dynamics, which I'm sure where changes in appetite throughout the cycle can absolutely fuck things up yeah. and ties into all of these, these habits, which are also issues that men just don't face. Right. And that was sort of the, one of the big underlying thrusts of the book that I wrote, the women's book was not only to address women's physiology, but to go, look, women face issues hormonally, psychologically, otherwise, that men just will never face. So while the principles are always the same, much of the information that will just apply wholeheartedly to men 
may not may have to be modified in the sense of women are having issues that again you, you just you just don't see with men. So I think that's sort of I don't know if that was three to five, but that is that is just the cluster of behaviors yeah. of trying to keep calories as low as possible, avoiding some type of progressive intense resistance training. And again, like I said, whether it's 15s that are challenging or powerlifting, like I'm not saying specifically that, doing excessive cardio mm-hmm. and doing some some things that don't work well uh, in terms of their macronutrient composition. Right. And when you sort of reverse all those, whether, and, and again, the hard bit is usually the buy-in. At least that's what I used to run into. Like I said, I think it's different now. I would have clients when I was uh, first training people in the 90s and I would have women like want to lose weight 800 calories a day or less all the cardio and I'd be like I didn't know why but I knew at some level that eating too little and exercising too much caused more harm than good like I couldn't have explained why I just kind of and I would tell them this you need to eat more and extra but how can that work and I would go what you're doing right now isn't working like you can't right. <laughs> like, like right now you're just butting your head against the wall for nothing. There's no and way to go I won- from there. Right. Well, exactly. And there, there really is a limit. Like, okay, when that doesn't work, what do you do? Eat nothing and exercise all day or whatever. And I had one client, I remember very specifically who she said she was eating 400. She was like, breakfast was half an egg. And I don't even know how you do that. <laughs> and lunch was like two tablespoons of, of tuna salad or something. And she went on a cruise or vacation. And of course, what do you do? You eat more and you exercise less. And she came back and she lost like five pounds. Yeah. And I was like, see, see what? And she went right back to crazy land yeah. because that's how it was always done. So, so it's, that's just kind of the cluster of, of things that have to be that, that I think traditionally women frequently do. Yes. Um, so for people like, um, I actually am not a coach. I'm not, I'm not a fitness coach. Okay. I'm a yoga teacher. Um, hmm. I've been teaching for like nine years, but I also, this, this podcast is generally about like self-help, how we can get out of like these habits and, and routines and autoimmune. So PCOS is okay. kind of considered an autoimmune condition, um, even though it's a hormonal, you know, imbalance condition, but, um, right. basically everything you're saying is like, okay, women who are over-exercising, eat, not eating enough, not eating enough protein, um, too much, you know, cardio, it's like grinding at the immune system. And I feel like these are the habits that are putting us in these situations where it's like, I can't eat any less. I can't move anymore. How the fuck am I ever going to change my body with people who do have goals? You know? Yes. And to that, I would actually want one other thing that ties into this that I have seen, and I'm sure you have seen, is you get one in that situation and nothing is happening. And like you said, even though there's really nowhere to go, the logic is still, okay, well, I'm going to find a way. I'm going to find a way. I'm going to add the morning aerobic workout to the two hours in the afternoon. I'm going to find a way to cut my, and it becomes this really, really vicious cycle. Yeah. And there is, there, there can actually be something. And I don't like, it's not, it's not adrenal fatigue, but what you see happening is you start just overdriving cortisol mm-hmm. constantly. There's also, there's a psychological component to this. There was a, a paper I cited in the women's book that, that referred to dieting as a, how did they put it? Psychodynamic stress. Cause it is dieting sucks. I mean, yeah. it, but you, you add to that, you add, of course, all the inherent life stress that women have in the modern world. And just as a quick tangent, I maintain, I think right now, 
again, I'm old, so I've seen this develop. Women, even more so than men, are being exposed to more chronically elevated stress than ever before. Because, you know, back in the day when you could actually have a one income household, you didn't have women that frequently had to work full time, frequently taking care of the house. There may be children. There may be the big child. Uh, I have known women that are like, okay, I cook my dinner. I cook the kids' dinners. I cook the big kid dinner. <laughs> and then trying to fit in their own training. Yeah. What, what, it's, it's, it's fucking relentless. And so you see this situation where you start overdriving cortisol, which causes any number of problems. I mean, this, and this is actually where I'm not, I can't say I'm really tied into yoga. I did it once. I was sore for a week because it hit muscles I wasn't even aware of. And I never went back. Guys, that's how, guys hate That's stretching. how my classes are. A lot of guys come and they're like, they're, no, they're no. struggling hard. So it's funny. Make no mistake about it. Women love stretching because they're very good at it. And men hate stretching because they're very bad at it. And of course, there's a lot of eh, yoga is for women, all that nonsense. But in a very real way, women should probably stretch less and men should stretch more. But, but yeah, doing those sorts of things to your point, the self-care, making time for yourself, yoga, relaxation, it, whether it's yoga, whether it's meditation, mindfulness work, the just finding time. And I'm not, I mean, I'm not a single mom or a powerlifter I train, uh, Sumi Singh is, she writes about, about this, like, look, you have to find time to just have a break. Right. I actually did really funny console. I do consults now and I did one, uh, and as a woman, she was having trouble and she was trying to fit in a lot of things around her family. And part of that was going to the gym. And I said, let me guess as much as anything about the exercise. It's to give you a break from the house. She's like, oh, yeah, I won't give it up. She's like, she's like, I go for a walk for 45 minutes just to get out of the house. I'm like, yeah. I get it. Yeah. I mean, I can I can intellectually get it. I have two dogs. On it, but anyway, <laughs> so we've got that hugely elevated stress levels and what you see. That elevated cortisol is causing problems. One thing it can cause is water retention. Yeah. Women have issues with that due to the menstrual cycle. That can mask weight loss. So they just start pushing harder and harder and harder, and it just makes it worse and worse and worse. And you can get a situation where in response to that chronically elevated cortisol, the system will basically shut down. The body's trying to protect itself. Yeah, that was a question. And you will get I a situation. Had, um, yeah. Do you think and cortisol is like a blocker of metabolic health like do you think that raised cortisol is this thing that um actually makes metabolic adaptation worse and metabolic damage probably worse? especially when it's chronically elevated like acute like cortisol pulses are very adaptive mm -hmm. and that's kind of if you if you haven't read it i would really highly recommend this book to, to any it's called why zebras don't get ulcers by a guy named robert sapolsky who Stanford educated. He's who I want to be when I grow up without the crazy hair and beard. He's a Stanford PhD doing research on stress neurons who spent 20 years studying Savannah baboons. Fascinating guy. And he's, and he's written this very accessible book on stress. And his whole, the, the thesis is, right, animals don't, don't expo expose themselves to chronic stress, right? And his thing is why zebras don't get ulcers. Zebras get chased by a lion they get caught, they're done. If not, they have this huge stress response, but then they get to relax. Humans have created a world and an existence where we can psychologically stress ourselves into chronic stress, worrying about taxes and our bills and our relationships on top of everything else. 
And whereas these acute pulses, very adaptive, mobilize fat, mobilize energy, great for memory, chronically elevated cortisol, breaks the system. And it blocks hormonal response in the brain, something called leptin, which is very involved in metabolic rate. Elevated cortisol causes insulin resistance. If you're eating a high-carb diet, which many women do, that can promote you know, the dreaded belly fat, all this type of stuff. That, that, but, but what does happen at the extremes is women go from producing too much, their body just goes, whoa, and stops. Now women have chronically low energy, can't mobile, like, and to, I... I've looked, I haven't seen anything that says it actually can ever like fix itself, unfortunately. And again, it's not exactly adrenal fatigue as what, as that was conceptualized, but the end result is kind of the same. Mm-hmm. What are you, are right? you talking about? What, with... what can't fix itself? The, the cortisol? Well, I've never seen anything that shows that that system will eventually come, at least not over a couple of years to come back online. One really good book on stress I read that I'd have to pull off my shelf to get the name of. He's like, yeah, it can take years for the body to recover from that. And again, you see that all the time. Excess cardio, too few calories, elevated stress. Why am I not losing fat? I've joked that like you can you can tell folks online that they're tightly wired. And men do this too. I don't want to make it sound like this is only and and you can hear the tension in their typing. It's all caps. Mm-hmm. Why am I not losing weight? Like you can just like, okay, you just yeah. go take a yoga class. Just take a breath. Uh-huh. And I have somewhat jokingly, but not really said, look, you need to take a day off your diet and you need to go get drunk or get high and get properly laid. <laughs> you need to relax. Yeah, and yeah, I see I'm that. partly joking with that advice and I'm really partly not joking. No, yeah. It's something I have often, something I've often seen is women or men that have just been beating their head against the wall. And they're like, you know what? Fuck this. They take a couple days off from the gym. They they eat a little bit more. And that eliminates that, that eliminates that block, that elevation on cortisol. And what happens? They go in on Monday and like, oh, shit, I've I've lost three pounds. Mm -hmm. Because they remove that. And then, of course, they usually go back to, to dieting like crazy. If you can get them to buy into it. So yeah, there is just this chronic loop that if they keep pushing and keep pushing and keep pushing, and again, very intuitively logical. If I'm not making getting results, I should work harder. I did that as an athlete. Athletes do that all the time. They start to get chronically fatigued. And what their body is trying to tell them is rest. And what they're going is I'm underperforming. I need to train twice as hard until you eventually hit but like eventually the system just goes Mm-mm. you get hurt you get sick your body shit just goes uh-uh you're, you're taking out. a break whether you like it or not and you lose a month mm-hmm. because you didn't take the day off you didn't take the easy week and i think that's, then getting that's what people who who have autoimmune issues and pcos they need to hear that because if they keep pushing and pushing and pushing that's actually going to cause more inflammation and more cortisol issues and yep. hence you know loss of periods and PCOS. I just recently got diagnosed with PCOS. Um, really? Yeah. Okay. And I, I also have Hashimoto's and hypothyroidism, but I think oh gosh, I know yes. a lot. But they're all they tend to go hand in hand. Exactly. And I think it is from years of disordered eating, years of over exercising. Now, I totally agree with you. I lowered my exercise to just walking on the treadmill and teaching mm-hmm. yoga, and I ha- I feel completely different. Um, yeah. So. And I think it's also with PCOS people and just people who are going through a lot of autoimmune stuff, um, 
weight training sometimes triggers more stress in the body if if like if they're pairing it with too much cardio too it's like it's like you got to pick and choose what you do it, no, absolutely. And this is, I read an article on this years and years and years ago. And, and I was like, I, one of my books is about sort of a crash diet approach and it's very low in calories. But one of the things that I harped on throughout this book that so many people wouldn't listen to is, look, you cannot do it. Not only can you not do a ton of exercise on this, you shouldn't. Have you ever had an acne breakout come at the worst possible time? This is literally my life. I mean, I teach yoga and it seems like whenever I have a yoga class to teach that day or the day before, I have a new breakout or a new blemish or a new pimple that has just arrived on my face and it's exhausting and it's annoying because as a yoga teacher and somebody who's into health and wellness and herbalism and all these things about healing, I just think I shouldn't have acne. I, I, it's a really hard thing to deal with and it takes a toll on my self-esteem. It takes a toll on my confidence. And I know that people aren't judging me in yoga class, but it's something that I personally just really want to figure out. So we've all had struggles with our skin at some point in our lives. And that's why I'm excited to partner up with Apostrophe. Apostrophe is a prescription skincare company that offers science-backed oral and topical medications that are clinically proven to help clear acne. Apostrophe connects you with a board-certified dermatologist who will create a personalized treatment plan that is perfectly tailored to your unique skin needs. All you do is go on Apostrophe's website You fill out an online quiz about your skin goals, your medical history, you snap a few selfies of your face, and your dermatologist will create your customized treatment plan. Apostrophe treats all types of acne, from hormonal acne to facial acne to acne on your body. And what I've been wanting to clear up is my hormonal acne because as you guys know, I talk a lot about this on the podcast. I have PCOS and hormonal imbalance, which definitely causes a lot of cystic acne on my face. Um, and it's really hard to just live your life as an adult when you have adult acne. It can really take a toll on your self-esteem. Um, There's other things that you could use apostrophe for, like improving your skin texture, reducing dark spots. Uh, You can also use it for treating wrinkles and wanting to have a more youthful face. So my experience with apostrophe has been super easy. I am really impressed with how fast and effortless the process has been. Uh, All I did was fill out that quiz, sent them my pictures, and then really quickly the dermatologist created my plan and sent me messages in the portal and basically went over all of the topicals and medication that he is prescribing to me and really broke it down so that I understand what's in these topicals and what's in the medication. He prescribed me spironolactone for the hormonal acne and a couple other topicals that I'm really excited to try. One of them is tretinoin, which is also known to help decrease the 
appearance of lines and wrinkles and just keep a youthful face so it helps with the aging process and it's really it's really awesome because honestly I'm not the kind of person that's going to make a dermatologist appointment and take a Lyft or an Uber to go to the appointment I don't have a car I do everything from home and let's just be real there's enough crap going on in life We are putting so much energy into just surviving right now and working and taking care of our families, taking care of our pets and just being an adult in this world. So if you could do something from home and just get the products sent to your door, I'm all about that kind of service. You don't even have to schedule an appointment. You literally just go on the website and fill out that questionnaire and then you're good to go. So Apostrophe has given Vibe Within listeners a special deal. You can save $15 off your first visit with Apostrophe, and all you're going to do is go to apostrophe.com slash vibe and use that code vibe, V-I-B-E, and this code is only available to you guys. So to get started, you're just going to go to apostrophe.com slash vibe. You're going to click begin visit and then use the code vibe at checkout. So what you're going to do is go to apostrophe.com slash vibe. That's A-P-O-S-T-R o-p-h-e dot com slash vibe and use that code vibe to get your dermatologist crafted treatment plan for five dollars and i'm really excited to be partnering up with apostrophe and i will keep you guys updated with my process and my skin care and healing journey so if you're struggling with acne hormonal acne i know it's hard it can really take a toll on your self-esteem and your confidence Go to apostrophe.com and just start that process today. Because it will actually make your results worse. Mm -hmm. And invariably, the biggest failures, people are like, well, kept doing an hour of hard cardio. I'm like, what did I say? And like you said, you got to pick your poison. If you want to do very low calories, you cannot do a ton of activity, especially intense activity. That was something that came out in the late 2000s where it's like, oh, interval training is better than low-intensity cardio, and that's a whole separate issue. Both have pros and cons. Yeah, doing a little bit is fine. But what happened is people went, okay, I'm going to do high-intensity interval training five, six, seven days a week. And they took what is good in small. So, yeah, you need to pick your poison. If you're going to cut calories hard, Okay, that's fine. You cannot put a ton of activity on that. Mm-hmm. If you're going to do a ton of activity, you can't you have to keep your calories higher. You have to pick or just as an exception that probably doesn't apply to a lot of your listeners is if you're looking at people dieting to the extremes, like physique athletes, bodybuilding, fitness figure, especially if they're very light, right? Like when they start their diet, small deficit, a little bit of cardio. But as they get to 11 or 12% body fat, they may have to keep increasing the activity just to maintain the debt. That is 1% of the population. And what people, people like to hold those people, those athletes up as how to diet. Mm -hmm. But here's what does, here's what gets left out. They only look like that for one day. Right. And it's, and you don't hear, and you don't hear about the 20 pound rebound and the, as a coach I knew once said, if you don't have an eating disorder going into that, mm-hmm. 
you'll have one coming That's out of it. That's what I was just about to say. That's what's not talked about. So, but, but to your point, yes, A, you have to kind of pick your poison, yeah. right? Either keep your calories higher and ramp up your activity. And there is, and some of this is, there's a difference between gradually increasing activity and jumping into too much of it, right? If you look at elite endurance athletes, cyclists, marathoners, they didn't start doing 20 hours a week. They started doing three. Mm-hmm. And it took them a decade. But what do we do? Oh, that's I'm going to do their training right off the bat. That's not what they did. And there is, if you give the body a chance to adapt as your fitness goes up, and at, that's very different than jumping into it. But yes, A, you got to pick your poison. Mm-hmm. You can only combine so many intense things at a time. Right. right. And this was something else. There are all these studies in the late 2000s. Okay. Low calories, low calorie, low carbs is okay, fine. High intensity interval training is superior to cardio, maybe. High intensity weight training is best. Let's do all three at once. Let's, well, no, none of these studies the looked at all. Oh my God. Suddenly you're doing low calories and nothing but high intensity training. The body can't survive it. So you have to, yes, very much pick your point. And the more, in, if you're doing cardio and weights, that's fine. The more intense your weight training is, the more volume, the more larger amount, the less and or lower intensity of cardio you should be doing, right? Bodybuilders got ripped doing nothing but brisk walking on the treadmill. Mm -hmm. It's an underrated activity. More people should do it. Um, There's actually some really good data. This ties into what you were talking about, I think is very relevant. What they call green exercise. Exercising outside is different than the gym in terms of the physiological response. It's better. And I'm sure we could hand wave that whatever evolved outside will probably, I mean, obviously you have to take into account weather, pollution, do you have a place to go? But yeah, this idea that every, all workouts must be intense, like no, a 45 minute brisk walk outside in the sun will do you not only huge physical good, but mental and emotional good. Yeah, and I I think I've heard you say on get a dog podcasts, they'll make you walk get a dog they'll make you walk them. Oh, Sorry, yeah. go ahead. No, yeah, you're right. But I've I think I've heard you on other podcasts say that like you know low intensity walking um is is better for fat loss for women. Um, not no. It's uh, this gets super complicated. Before I get into this, I want to say one other thing, okay. which also ties in with something you brought up. And I also don't want to skirt the PCOS thing. A lot of people try to force either fat loss or train, whether it's muscle growth, strength gains. Sometimes you have to coax it. But with women who can have very individual physiology, you've got the menstrual cycle, you've got all kinds of birth control. And that is... Mm Oh my God, wrapping my head around birth control took months and nearly it's, there's so many different types, different forms with different effects that can alter women's physiology, PCOS, loss of menstrual cycle as women age and go through perimenopause and menopause, their physiology changes, right? As I, I have jokingly and not jokingly said, guys are the same from puberty till death. They're the same jackass every single day, their entire life right? Men's testosterone goes, that's it. Women have pre-puberty, puberty, menstrual cycle from what, 15 to 45 or so. You may impose birth control on that. PCOS, women can lose their period for all kinds of reasons, include training and diet. And these are distinct physiological states. 
at, at, at best in a dude, they either have high or low testosterone. That's really it in the big picture. Women, you have, you can't, so like talking about the menstrual cycle, you can't fix it. And that's really not the word I want to use. Like if a woman has a menstrual cycle across the month. It is what it is. Her physiology, her biology, her psychology will change throughout that. Well, you can either try to fight it, which doesn't work. I mean, some women will fix it by taking birth control to level it out. You have to work with it. Yeah. Just like you have to work with the person. And right. And if someone came to you or came to me and said, look, I have so much stress. I work 10 hours a day, go home, clean, cook, fit my own. The last thing I am going to give them is a diet and exercise program that is just going to add to that stress. Yeah. I will have to find something to either, whether I ease it, go, look, you have to take a slower approach, longer approach, ease you in, cardio, nothing but low. Yeah, it maybe won't burn as many calories, but too bad. Even better yet, get a walking desk. Then you can just burn. That's about as low intensity as it gets. And across an eight-hour workday, you'll actually burn more calories on a walking desk, a treadmill desk, mm -hmm. than you will doing an hour of cardio <laughs> without nearly the stress to the body on top of all the other potential benefits. Whereas someone comes to me and goes, look, I don't work for whatever reason. You know, elite athletes, as I heard it put one time, they train, eat, sleep, travel, and compete. That is their job. The things they can do or should do or need to do when they have no additional stressors in there, it's a totally different situation. Right. And that's, unfortunately, a lot of the information goes, well, elite athletes are the biggest, the strongest, the buffest, the leanest. Let's just do what they do. Can't be done. Anyway, so yeah, you've got, you've got all of that going on. To that, add PCOS. And I do want to touch on that because A, it is the most common reproductive disorder in women. Um, if you look at infertility clinics, something like 80% of the women have PCOS. Yeah. Like it's, it's staggering. Um, it's also one of the most under-diagnosed endocrine disorders for a number of boring reasons that aren't really relevant other than to say that that is the case. I don't know how many years it took you to get. I have known women that were like, you know what? I knew something was wrong for a decade mm -hmm. and nobody. And then finally, I got someone who saw the symptoms yeah. and diagnosed me. I actually had a good friend, old family friend. Um, she hit menopause and gained a tremendous amount of weight and nobody could find, figure it out. Now, it turned out she'd been on birth control since she was like 15. Yeah. And birth control is a common treatment for PCOS. It masked it. Nobody knew. Exactly. She hit menopause, went off of birth control, and then the first doctor was no good. And then she went to, uh, a, I forget if it was an OBGYN or if it was a more of a sort of progressive holistic doctor who took one look at her and said, oh, yeah. I mean, we're going to verify it, but oh, yeah, there's I know exactly what's going on. Yeah. Because if you know the signs, if you know what to look for, yeah, you can almost tell. And it is... There is a genetic component. It actually runs in families, just as a piece of trivia. There's actually, they've now identified a men's form of PCOS because we won't let women have anything. <laughs> yeah, I had to do my own research um, to basically find out because I was like, there is something not right. This is not just thyroid. This is not just Hashimoto's. Right. This is something else. 
Um, and so I did my own research. I have all the symptoms. I didn't get the ovaries tested, but I have every other sure. symptom. And I finally, you know, went to a, an OBGYN, got blood work, blah, blah, blah. And it's like, yeah, yeah it's not just Boom. in your head. It's, it's, you know, all the symptoms of PCOS suck, hair loss, irregular periods, oh. um, weight gain, you know, it, and there's no reason for the weight gain. Cause I'm, I eat very clean cause I have to, like right. my Hashimoto's the, forces me to. Sure. Um, yes. And the, and the number of things that go wrong with PCOS. So just again, a little bit of detail. PCOS is actually like a number of different situations. Yeah. The way it's diagnosed, there's three criteria. I'm sure you, there is elevated androgen levels like testosterone and such, which can either be measured with blood work or you see it, uh, excess body hair, um, acne, hair loss, oily skin. It's so fun. Basically, it's so fun. It, <laughs> it, you know, androgens are like, that's what makes boys go through puberty, right? And PCOS women can have testosterone levels up to double the normal range for women. So it causes that. You have uh, cysts on the ovaries, hence polycystic ovary syndrome. And you have some sort of, re and there's reproductive dysfunction, which can, which can either be oligomenorrhea, which is a cycle between 35 to 90 days, or anovulation and amenorrhea, where there's a no menstrual cycle. Now, to be diagnosed, you have to have two of those three. So that gives you four different possibilities. You can have all three, which is the worst. Mm -hmm. You can have, let me make sure I get this right, cysts on the ovaries and elevated androgens, but no menstrual cycle dysfunction. Mm -hmm. You can have cysts on the ovaries, uh, menstrual cycle dysfunction without elevated androgens. And you can, believe it or not, you can have uh, elevated androgens, menstrual cycle dysfunction without the multiple cysts on the ovaries, mm -hmm. which seems, how can you have polycystic ovary syndrome without polycystic ovaries? It's because the original determination back in the 30s, they had all, and it's just, they've expanded the diagnostic criteria. Yeah. In 10 years, there's, they're going to call it four different things. Yeah. It's just there's four different subtypes of PCOS. And really, the elevated androgens is really what causes, drives most of the problems. It causes the acne, the oily skin, could potentially cause hair loss. It causes the menstrual cycle dysfunction. It causes insulin resistance, and which means that in, a, in response question. to carbs, you get elevated insulin response. Yeah. Um, elevated androgens, is, is that just another way of saying your estrogen and progesterone are lower and your testosterone dominant? Um, it's probably, I'd have to look to be 100% sure. I think estrogen and progesterone are relatively normally normal. Don't swear to me to that. Okay. But testosterone is in the, the, the elevated range. Okay, okay. Uh, so just to give you some numbers, normal female testosterone, 30 to 70 nanograms per deciliter. PCOS women can have up to 150. Now, the normal male range starts at 300. So you don't get, but it's still, it's enough, mm -hmm. right? When you double that and you get, you, it, when PCOS women are prone to elevated depression, anxiety, uh, autoimmune is certainly one of them, cardiovascular risk, uh, it's And most of this, well, it's a couple things. The elevated androgen levels cause insulin resistance. So your body doesn't handle carbs as well. You get an ele elevated insulin increases testosterone levels. So it becomes this real nasty cycle. Right. Do you think that and keto is, is, is um, I know it's not for everybody, but I know keto is sure. what, like under 30 carbs, which is really hard for me to do. 
Um, I'm, sure. I'm, Depends I'm, on who you talk to. 30 to 50 or so. Right. Certainly. Um, let me come back to that real quick. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, but I, but I will, cause that's actually a really important question in terms of PCOS women and weight gain and weight loss. Mm -hmm. You see excess cravings for carbohydrates and sugars. You don't see the same degree of appetite regulation, um, which can predispose to weight gain. You see, uh, obviously there's just, they call it decreased quality of life. It's this real vague thing you see in research. There can be dec decreased sexual satisfaction frequently and realize these are the researchers words, not mine, mm -hmm. but you get women that if you are carrying and you get excess abdominal fat, that if you're a woman and you're carrying excess abdominal fat and you have excess body hair or acne, and that causes a decrease in self-esteem and self-worth, Right. then yeah, that's absolutely can potentially lead to sexual dissatisfaction. So you've got this whole cluster of things and it's a real mess. And there's a genetic component, lifestyle can trigger it. Like I said, the fact that men can, within families, brothers and sisters, the male, but it, it tends to be triggered by the environment, yeah, for, lifestyle, by any number, for sure. any number of things. So, and it becomes this very nasty, like I said, feed forward thing. Um, now the... You know, the first line, of course, is lifestyle and diet, diet and exercise, which is great, but there are a great number of medications that are used. Birth control is very common because birth control reduces a woman's testosterone by half and regulates her cycle. So that's a very common approach because if you reduce those elevated androgen, those testosterone levels, that sort of breaks a lot of those cycles and you will eventually see improvements in body hair, acne, oily skin, mm -hmm. et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Obviously birth control won't help with fertility kind of by definition, right. but if it's used initially to break that cycle, they use a drug called metformin, which improves insulin sensitivity, which again has a, the same sort of effect. If metformin improves the insulin sensitivity, less insulin, you get less androgens produced, you still get lower testosterone. It's sort of a, a, it's a secondary effect. There may be, they may use stuff that's more dermatological. They will use stuff for fertility. Um, but um, a lot of it, spirin spironolactone. Spironolactone is an androgen receptor blocker. So it okay. prevents the testosterone from having its effect in the cell. Okay. So that's real common. Um, I'm sure that like there's a huge list. Pharmaceuticals aren't really my big area, right. but I'm, there's a, there's a whole ton of them. Because they say I'm sorry? the spironolactone confuses me a little bit because I've been researching it and it's like it says that it it's it helps with hair loss. It's and a diuretic. Acne. Okay, it's yes. diuretic, and I, I guess it's I just write, read a lot about it in these Reddit forums for PCOS, and yeah. a lot of people say it it helps a lot, but yes. So again, so what? So so. The testosterone binds to a receptor, and that's what causes the increase in all of these other things. Mm -hmm. The spironolactone binds to that receptor and blocks it, right? Like the way the way is like the hormone is is a key and the receptor is a lock. Mm -hmm. So basically, spironolactone is like putting a blank key, and it just blocks the test. So it it has that the testosterone levels aren't decreased, but they can't send their normal signal. Okay. That makes sense. So, and, and when I said it's a diuretic, it's, I don't want to get into it. Just, right. it, it, it works, it has that effect and is a very commonly used compound. So there's a number of different ways to do it. We know that exercise improves insulin sensitivity. So that's kind of a first line thing. Cardio and weight training seem to have slightly different effects in terms of metabolism, uh, improvements in insulin sensitivity, fertility, number of cycles, stuff like that. And, but diet is really primary. 
women with PCOS are prone to obesity and something like, I want to say 70 to 85, 90% of women with PCOS are going to have a higher body fat percentage BMI and suffer with obese. There is a lean PCOS subtype. Yeah, that's what I have. And I think, remember, so like I listed those four different types. Mm -hmm. The one that doesn't have elevated androgen levels, the one that just has the the cystic ovaries in the, in the, uh, reproductive dysfunction yeah. that's like the the least problematic has the least negatives i think that's what i, I suspect <clears throat> yeah Hopefully. i suspect that that's the subtype that doesn't because again it's the those elevated and it's those elevated testosterone levels are really driving the bus on a lot of the problems so i suspect that's the leaner subtype mm-hmm. it's also really just as a random note when they've done like analyses of how prevalent the different subtypes are that one comes in last, but I suspect that it is underrepresented because women that are lean and don't have these other problems don't go to doctors. I have a feeling they know something's wrong, but it's not severe enough or, or the doctor yeah. doesn't pick the doctor doesn't pick up on exactly. it because why would they? The doctors right? don't take it seriously. There, there's also one of the, the problems with PCOS is it's, they call it, it's a diagnosis by exclusion. You have to exclude all these other problems first, mm-hmm. right? Women can lose their period for a ton of different reasons. They may produce elevated testosterone for a bunch of different reasons. They sort You sort of have to eliminate those first and then, but to me, like, again, I've done consultations and women describe, probably if I'd been talking to you without knowing anything about you, and one when she was like, you know what, I've always had sort of tend to gain abdominal body fat. I'm like, has your cycle been irregular? She's like, oh, yeah, since puberty. I'm like, go get tested for PCOS. Like, you don't have to tell me anything else, right? Just go. And if, when you're familiar enough with it, you can just hear that. And I mean, if and again, women with PCOS, especially if they're carrying excess body weight, there's frequently hate to say this and I hope people understand what I'm trying to just, there is often a look to them in terms of their facial structure. I've even found, you know, when you're exposed to elevated testosterone, they may be more, this is a minefield, tomboy like, mm-hmm. and I hate to use, like, I hope people know what I'm sort of yeah. traditional masculine behavior patterns. Yeah. I've, they're great athletes and build muscle really easily. And, but if I see, if I'm out and I see a woman who's carrying excess body weight and has a little bit like, Oh yeah, that's, she needs to go to the doctor right now, say, test me for PCOS, because there is no, it just doesn't generally happen. Anyway, so there is a lean PCOS, but as women, women PCOS, if they gain excess body fat, that makes the problem worse, because the insulin resistance gets worse, right. because everything becomes more problematic. So if PCOS women can lose 5 to 10% of body weight, things improve drastically. I even, one paper I read, they, they put women with PCOS through a gastric bypass. And there was literally like a hundred percent of the women saw a complete elimination yeah. of side effects. Now that's at the extreme. And, and, but it's fucked up because it's like, okay, the, the oh, sure. cure of PCOS is to lose some weight. Is it and it's like prop. they can't lose weight because they're on this never ending treadmill of doing all the wrong things, which. So know, correct. Which is, it comes so that brings to me movement and food, which is what you're saying is like the two main things. Yes and yes. However, and there's sort of a caveat to this because there is, you will run into this idea online of women PCOS going, you know what, I've tried everything and I can't lose weight. Now, look, you see that in all domains. And usually it's because there's a cluster of doing things wrong, 
And again, this is not, it's not specific to women. It's not specific to women with PCOS. Men do it too. It also gives us the idea that, oh, no women with PCOS can lose weight. Well, one of the things that social media has taught me, the internet has taught me, you get a very skewed idea of things. Because if a woman has PCOS and she's losing weight effectively, she doesn't usually go talk about it online or ask questions. Mm-hmm. We tend to see the difficult cases. Yeah. Okay, so what does the research say? The research shows that, okay, if you take PCOS women and non-PS women and put them on a diet and exercise program, they lose weight in equal amounts. Okay, well, there seems to be a disconnect between the real world here. And there's a piece of data kind of hidden in in that research. So most diet studies have a really poor, like 30% dropout rate. It's pretty poor. PCOS women drop out at like 50 to 60%. So there is an adherence issue. The PCOS women, but now I don't want anyone to hear me saying, ah, not playing the sloth and gluttony card. That shit needs to go. That shit needs to die. Mm -hmm. Because what's happening, PCOS women are faced with barriers to behavior change that are causing problems. And we've touched on some of them. Anxiety does not make dieting easier. Depression, sure as shit, does not make regular exercise and adhering to your diet better. Oh, one I forgot, PCOS women are more prone to binge eating. Appetite is higher. Mm -hmm. Appetite regulation is worse. It's not that they are too lazy or whatever to stick to the, the inherent biology of PCOS is making it more difficult, right? So again, oh, just go to the gym. All right, look, if you have body image issue, self-esteem issues, if you've seen all those kills me, gym fail videos, all these these people that fit my industry and don't get me ranting about that. Oh, nobody judges you when you go to the gym. And yet I can go online and find people taking videos of people who go, look at this dumb shit. Really? People are absolutely judging you. You're you're, you're wrong. That can make it very difficult to want to even go to the gym and deal with that. You've got all this biology. So then we get into this issue of, okay, is there a better way? Like we talked about, Three hours ago, I talk a lot. We can't fight the system. We frequently, we have to learn how to work with it. So what, do you, what can we do? Well, a lot of it, and then the studies also say, ah, diet composition doesn't matter for PCOS. So long as weight is lost, benefits are seen. Well, yeah, but that's kind of a circular argument, right? Like, yeah, diet composition doesn't matter so long as weight is lost. But if 50 to 60% of women are dropping out of the diet, it doesn't really matter. Mm-hmm. The question then becomes, is there a better diet composition for women with PCOS? And the answer is yes, in terms of addressing some of these issues. So there's been three papers now looking at increased dietary protein. And I, I won't remember the specifics. I've gotten all written down somewhere. And they increase protein to... It's like 25 to 30%. I want to say it was like, eh, I mathed it out one time. It's like 0.9 to 1.1 grams per pound of lean body mass. I've got the data somewhere. It was in like the 100 to 120, 130, 140 gram range, which a lot of women will go, oh my God, that's so much protein. Exactly. No, not really. Yeah. When, when women are used to eating 40 grams of protein per day, you're like, that should be, you can get that in a meal. Do that through like can of tuna is 32 grams of protein. Four ounce chicken breast is about 30 grams of protein. 100, 120 is cake. Mm-hmm. And what they found, one study found that just increasing protein 
the women ate less and lost a significant, just doing that one thing, because we know that appetite tends to blunt hunger best. It regulates blood sugar better. It does all these beneficial things. Another paper found that, okay, higher protein and lower protein didn't cause a difference in fat loss. The higher protein, for reasons that were unclear, caused a decrease in anxiety and depression. Totally. Totally. Like, yeah. I don't give a shit if the fat loss wasn't any better. If the ability to adhere is better, it's better. Yeah. <laughs> so you had that. So that so first off, increasing dietary protein. And anyone who's listened to any podcast I've done, if there are two bullet points anyone takes away from this, in addition to everything else we've talked about, you need to be doing some sort of proper resistance training. And it doesn't have to be much. Twice a week for 30 minutes, yeah. 40 minutes. You don't have to be in there two hours a day, six days a week, like all the, the neurotics. Especially, and I say that as a fit. I will say, especially for folks like me who have autoimmune and Hashimoto's, doing too it much. It can cause more. Will cause absolutely, because it causes inflammation. And yeah. Absolutely. Intense weight training can cause like little tears in muscle. It can't. Done to excess. Mm -hmm. I mean, that's almost like the theme of this. Anything done to excess takes it from being good to being bad. Yeah. Some is better than none, but more is not always better than some. That and getting sufficient protein, a lot of the other problems will kind of solve themselves. Okay, so the other thing is, even though the studies say, ah, oh, it doesn't matter how many carbs you eat and all this other shit, yeah, it does. And I don't want to get into the weeds on stuff like glycemic index and glycemic load. And it's probably a lot of these studies are like, ah, oh, we put them on 70% carbs, but all we gave them was vegetables and food that nobody eats. Mm, yeah. I mean, realistically, let's face it. People in the modern world, unless they are very like you have to because of your auto, yeah. most people are not going to live on fruits, vegetables, and all the high fiber carbs because carbs, because there's tastier stuff out there. Right. One thing and I in will my say experience, is that I've been, um, I've been, I was vegan for um, eight years and the last mm -hmm. week or so I finally caved and said, I'm going to start eating salmon because mm -hmm. all the, um, all the protein that I was getting was super carby and it was really messing up my system. And I was like, you know what? Yes. Fuck this. I'm just going to take the advice from all these people who are telling me you need to get lean protein because yes. the protein from beans, protein from, um, you know, vegetables or whatever was messing with my autoimmune stuff. Because it, br it brings in too many other calories. It's very, unless you use a lot of supplemental proteins and protein powders, it's Which can be very, very difficult. Which was also fucking with my stomach too. Right. Um, and I haven't looked, but it wouldn't surprise me if PCOS, if the gut microbiota wasn't fucked up too. Mm -hmm. So in the real world, it's generally easier to just moderate carbohydrate intake than try to mess around too much with sources. Like, yeah, make sure, get your fiber, get like, get all that, but... It's usually easier to cut carbs. At that point, you need to bring up dietary fat to moderate levels. So when you do that, when they've mathed this stuff out, it basically, you end up with most of the recommendations for PCOS being carbs, 40 to 45% of total calories as a starting point. Dietary fat, 25, 30%. You know, want to make sure you get healthy fats, get your fish oils, which you're also getting from the salmon, which is excellent. Monounsaturates, you can't avoid saturated, that's fine. Protein ends up at 25 to 35%. And it just solves so many of the problems. The protein helps with appetite 
anxiety, depression, somehow. They, they kind of hypothesized that something to do with amino acids in the brain. I, to me, I, I don't attest care. to that I, because, dude, I like I said, I was vegan for nine years. And the yeah, night that I brain ate feels the, better. the salmon, I like – Maybe it was placebo, but I slept a little bit better and I've been eating it every yeah, night. And there's I'm like, something going on. I am full. Yeah. I'm, I'm, I absolutely. feel like satiated. I'm not, I don't feel the yes, need to absolutely. snack at night anymore. Absolutely. Um, by reducing the total carbohydrate intake, you are reducing the body's need to produce tons of insulin to help. So that helps to correct some of the insulin sensitivity. The dietary fat is sort of. It's kind of, you got to eat something. It's kind of a consequence of lowering carbs. Dietary fat has to come up, but it ends up sort of having the same results. And what's what's fascinating to me, I, I read a paper, it's over a decade ago, and it was titled The Optimal Diet for Treating Insulin Resistance, right? Back when we were dealing with sort of metabolic syndrome and syndrome X. And it's exactly the same. Well, PCOS is generally an insulin-resistant situation. And realize that the insulin-resistant is actually genetic. It's something that's a de defect within the skeletal muscle. Mm. And we can talk about one of the supplements because I think it is important um, that, that sort of has shown to have enormous effect for PCOS, like staggering both health, insulin sensitivity, and reproduction. Ow. And so you lower carbs. The dietary fat tends to slow digestion, keep you full. And even if it doesn't matter what the macronutrients are in terms of fat loss, if that helps solve the problems with appetite, anxiety, depression, blood sugar swings, energy, start to lower energy levels, acne, hair loss, it becomes a feed forward. Not, it's, it's, those are the benefits. As much as the, it's the diet working with the PCOS symptoms, working yeah. with those issues to ensure better adherence to improve results, which then improves self-esteem and they, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Yeah. It's about getting off the negative roller coaster cycle and starting that positive. And I, years ago, I did a, several years ago, I did a podcast. It was a diabetes podcast. We talked about the very same thing. And what he said, he goes, our goal is to get the system moving in the right direction. By using exercise to improve insulin sensitivity, decrease the need for meds, moderate carbs, start the fat loss, which improves insulin sensitivity, which makes you feel better, which et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. So that to me is really the, the big thing, is setting the diet up to work with the PCOS to make adherence and the lifestyle change. And, and if adding meds in initially helps with that, right? Because a lot of the papers are like, Try diet and exercise first and then add medication. Mm -hmm. Bullshit. Yeah, no. That's like I'm saying a, if I you have both. Right. Use use both. Like don't use one to replace the other. Don't use like I don't I'm not saying use meds to replace the lifestyle changes. Yeah. Yeah. Right? Like I've dealt with some mental illness stuff, which is a separate thing. Like, yeah, do I think therapy is critically important? Yes. But I've known people who are like, it's great, but when you're too depressed to get out of bed, you need the meds to actually get to your therapy appointment. Exactly. And if it helps you get moving in the right direction. Maybe you go out. Can I see this as the same thing? So I see no. It, there's to get really off topic. Are you? Have you been following the research on liraglutide and semaglutide? This new diet drug. This new no. appetite suppression drug. No. Uh, liraglutide was one of them. Semaglutide was the newest one, and it's an injectable, which is odd for a weight loss drug. But they are using it, and it it affects one. It affects one of the appetite hormones, glucagon like peptide one, it's not that important. And it is working better than literally any previous diet drug ever has. Hmm. Like most diet drugs crap out maybe 
weight loss and they stop working. This stuff's up in the 15, 20% range, the new version. It's a once a week shot. People go, we're still in this weird mindset. Like back in the 50s, ah, depression, you need to suck it up. Meds are for the weak. We're thankfully past that. I see it all the time in my own industry. Eh, why don't you just show some willpower and discipline? You or, know what? Or, or you're, but, you're under-reporting, you know, like for... for well, people. which is which is more common than you think, but it's more yeah. the attitude of, uh, why? And, and I just tell these people, okay, number one, fuck off. Number <laughs> two, you take, you take drugs every day for your own purposes that you justify, but somehow when it comes to treating weight loss and facilitating this to get people, somehow that's, give another 20 years, hopefully we'll be past that. Mm -hmm. But it's like, yeah, it's the same thing with PCOS. If bringing these drugs in, if reducing androgen levels with birth control or metformin eliminates the binge eating, the dermatological stuff that that causes low self-esteem, et cetera, et cetera. I'm even bleeding. Um, oh, my dog bit me. Um, <laughs> I, need to, I, think, I got a new um, puppy in. You said that uh, so, there's a P, the supplements for PCOS. PCO yes, okay. Berberine, is that one of them? Um, there's a whole bunch of them that improve insulin sensitivity. Berberine, chromium, cinnamon, believe it or not, actually does work. Um, just as a general sense, low vitamin D, which is real common in everybody, causes problems. Fish oils, omega-3s. Um, but yes, berberine is absolutely one of them. But the really the, the main ones people are focused on, excuse me, are the inositols. Have you come oh, across yes, these I'm in your research? That. I'm taking that. Excellent. Yeah. So there's so in the body, there's like nine different kinds. And but the two that are important here is myo-inositol, mm -hmm. and myo just means muscle, right? And, and again, I don't want to get too deep in the weeds, right? So when a hormone binds to the receptor, a bunch of stuff happens. I just refer to it as magic happens. Mm -hmm. And then something happens inside the cell because I can't be. But one of the steps in here of insulin doing what it's supposed to do is this myo-inositol. Yeah. And PCOS women have a genetically... There's a genetic issue where they don't have enough or don't produce enough. I don't know the specifics. It doesn't really matter. So myo-inositol as a supplement helps correct this deficiency. Yeah. Then there's dechiro-inositol, which is just a slightly different form. Dechiro-inositol works specifically at the ovary. Okay. And again, the details are super duper complicated and I'll just get them wrong. And they aren't really that relevant, mm -hmm. but there is a shift in the ratios of myo to dechironositol in the ovaries. And the end result of that is it causes anovulation and infertility. So these compounds have been studied for, for years and years and years. I still wonder who's the first person who had this idea. I always wonder that. Like, who was yeah. the guy who was like, huh, let's try this. Yeah, because I, I, I found out about it in uh, Reddit threads. Somebody was like, you got you to get on inositol. And I'm on the, the Mayo Dichiro blend. And I've only been yeah, on the it combination. For, um, maybe a few weeks. And I definitely do feel a, a little bit better. Yes, it will take. And there's actually, I don't know which, which you're on. One of the, I think, a lot of the products out there are not well made. They don't have the right ratios of Mayo and 40 to 1. 40 to 1 ratio should be 2000 milligrams to 50. Yeah, so that's yeah. What, what do you want? A vasa, you get a vasitol? Um, it's not, it's not that brand, it's it's an okay, but yeah, it is a 2000 to Same 50 thing. ratio. Yep, yeah, good. 
because a lot of them are made sort of randomly. Like there's no, mm -hmm. and, and actually if you give too much D-chiro inositol, which some do, it actually impairs fertility worse. Like a lot of the products out there just aren't well made. And yes, and what it is doing, it is correcting A, this sort of metabolic dysfunction within the muscle, which again, like we talked about, improve insulin sensitivity, lower insulin, lower androgen levels, lower androgen levels, lower insulin, less body hair, less acne, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. It's all just getting everything on the cycle. Now, it will probably take, in, in the papers, it's like three to six months for a full effect, right? especially for the dermatological stuff. Uh, once anyone listening to this who's, who's developed acne, that shit can take, it's, it, man, it acne's tough. Time. I mean, you can, it takes a really long time to, to, video, to But it takes a while. And it's like, that's also important. If you're taking an, an herb or a supplement, you should give it three months to, to do like yes. magic, and, you know? It, and this, and this especially, the data is actually there. I had numbers somewhere and it was like, they, they looked at acne, body hair, which admittedly there's some vague scales. Like it's, it's the, it's the, that body hair is, something called the Ferriman Galway scale. And it's like, you basically look at a picture and go, yeah, you're a three. It's, it's a very, it, it's a very subjective sort of thing. And I would mention that there's actually, there are ethnic differences. Folks who are ethnically more prone to body hair to begin with may present a little bit differently, which could make diagnosis, I mean, diagnosis either easier or harder, depending mm -hmm. without getting again, not a lot of data on that, but yeah. And it was like, so like the three month mark, women who had severe acne, 20 or 30% of them had moved to only, you know, only, I hate to say that moderate acne. Mm -hmm. And then by the six month mark, an enormous percentage had moved to, so it, acne, regrowing hair, that stuff, very slow process. Yeah. Um, but the other benefits in terms of like insulin sensitivity and stuff, I believe are faster because it's correcting it. It's just all of that is going on at the cell, you know, in the skin, the sebum. I mean, any woman who's experienced any sort of hair loss for whatever reason, like, I mean, even if you look at like the minoxidil stuff for men, like, yeah, you're looking at six months. I'm going through it right now. I, my hair is long, but it's gotten super thin. And I talk about this on the podcast. Yes. It's like really getting thin up at the top, which is terrifying, mm -hmm. you know? Um, but I'm doing, um, I'm doing everything I can taking the supplements, using rosemary oil, you know, I'm the less, right. less stress. Um, I've talked about it on the podcast, but I was like overusing the sauna and like the, the heat and that stress to the body was like a quick fix for my mental health. Um, sure. but it was actually sabotaging my skin, my hormones, just by drying you out and, and stuff. now I'm yeah. doing less, I'm working out less. I'm just doing Pilates and less sauna. And I'm like, wow, I feel like a new person. It's so, and it's so contradictory. And again, I did it when I was younger, I was an obsessive athlete and did too much and too much and then crashed and then went back to doing too much and too much and too, you know, so like, trust me, I'm not speaking from a position of superiority. I just learned the hard way. This podcast is sponsored by BetterHelp. You guys already know how obsessed I am with therapy. I talk about it all the time on this podcast about how I have two therapists and how I go to therapy every single week. Well, I've been going to therapy for years, but once 2020 hit, the year of chaos for all of us, I really needed extra support. And BetterHelp has really 
been there to guide me through these chaotic times. Uh, I've been dealing with anxiety, depression, and I also have been in this recovery space for disordered eating and just a host of other issues. So BetterHelp will assess your needs and, and match you with your own licensed professional therapist. You can start communicating in under 48 hours, so all you have to do is you take a, a quick online quiz, you answer some questions about what you're going through, what kind of therapist you're looking for, and you can literally write in the answers, I am looking for this kind of therapist, I am looking for an expert in this field. That's what I did, and they matched me with a therapist who has tons of experience with eating disorders, trauma, and depression and to be honest I love my therapist so much she's probably my favorite therapist I've ever had and I've been through like a variety of therapists over the years me and her really hit it off and even if you don't hit it off with your therapist right away because let's be real finding a therapist can honestly feel like you're dating don't worry, you can always change therapists as many times as you need. No questions asked, no charge or anything like that. So you can always change your therapist and then get matched with a new one that day. So BetterHelp uh, is not a crisis line. It's not self-help. It is literally professional counseling done securely online. And what I love about BetterHelp is that they have a journal feature. So if you're going through something challenging through the week and you don't have an appointment until, let's say, next week, you can write a journal entry. It's all online. It's secure. And if you'd like, you can share that journal entry with your therapist so that they are on the same page. They're caught up. They know exactly what you're going through. They know whatever triggers you've been dealing with over the week. And what's awesome about BetterHelp, too, is that your therapist will respond. So you can actually communicate with your therapist in between your, your sessions. So it's not like you only get, get to talk to your therapist once a week. You can check in with them frequently in between your sessions. You can catch them up to date. You can kind of communicate with them every day if you wanted to. And the online journal feature is really nice for folks who are new to journaling or just need that extra support. So communicating with your therapist more frequently could really benefit you if you're going through a rough time. BetterHelp is more affordable than traditional offline counseling and financial aid is available if you are struggling right now. BetterHelp wants you to start living a happier life today. You can visit betterhelp.com slash vibe. That's better com slash vibe. And you can join over 1 million people who have taken charge of their mental health with the help of an experienced professional. You deserve the support. You deserve the healing. And you are not alone. There are so many people who are struggling with severe anxiety, depression, trauma, all of these things. And you don't need to suffer in silence anymore. So visit betterhelp.com vibe for a discount on your first month of online therapy. That's betterhelp, H-E-L-P dot com slash vibe. 
and that discount code will get you 10% off of your first month of online counseling at betterhelp.com vibe. But what I found when I was younger, I would diet too hard. And when I plateaued, I would diet even harder. And then as I got older and sort of chilled out, I found that A, I could get just as good of results dieting with 75% of the effort. Like if I want, you know, and by that point, like that, that almost the less intensely I tried, the better my results were, Right. <laughs> which seems totally, especially the American, the Puritan work ethic, hard effort, hard work is its own reward. No, it's not. Get a, get out. Wait, like we said, you have to coax it. And women's systems are far more. I hate to use the word fragile. They're just more sensitive to, the, to these disruptions. Yeah. And whereas, as I like to say, and this sounds like pandering, it, men's bodies are just simple. We are simple creatures from literally from top to bottom. And I mean that in, in all ways. Women are complex in a way that men never will be. And again, we, we talked about some of the reasons. One thing I want to touch on, because it ties in the hair thing and, and maybe sort of wrap this up. Yeah. Menstrual cycle dysfunction, which is a huge issue. So a little bit of history. Um, when women started to really get involved in sport, especially in, the, in America in the 80s, how old are you? You're way too young to remember any of I'm that. I'm 32. So, okay, you're still way too young. So up until that point, women's involvement in sport in Western countries was very low. Mm-hmm. As a super interesting, I've actually got an article on my site, The History of Women in Sport. Take a guess. First Olympics, 1896. How many women do you think competed? I, I have no idea. What, like, just 20? You can, you can, you can. Oh, okay. Zero. Wow. Zero. The next Olympics, it was like four. Mm. And realize these were, is really, one was in like ballooning. It was weird, weird, weird ass sports. And it was mainly rich. I can guarantee you it was some eccentric rich woman who's like, I'm going to ride horseback. It was that kind of shit. And it grew o- over time. Really, the Soviets and the Germans are what pushed more women into the Olympics because they wanted to win medals. Olympics was about proving your political superiority. Mm-hmm. So in the 60s and 70s, they were like, we need more women's events. And then the UK was like, we better get more women into this game because we're losing to the commies. So in late 70s in America, they passed what was called Title 12, which said that all publicly funded schools had to give women equal access to all programs, music, art, academics, and that included sports. And up until that point, the question always was, are women not getting involved in sports because of lack of interest or a lack of access? Mm. And Title 12 answered that question without exception because by the mid-80s, Boys' involvement in sports, I'm talking high school level. When I say boys and girls, I'm not trying to be. Like, I know that's sort of a a point. Mm -hmm. Boys' involvement in sports hadn't really changed. And girls' involvement in sports had just been going up linearly. As soon as girls were given access to sport, they got, they wanted to do it, it just wasn't available. Then, at that point in the 80s, scientists started to see this problem. Among certain types of athletes, what they saw was eating disorders. They saw low bone mineral density, and they saw loss of menstrual cycle dysfunction, amenorrhea, full-blown loss of the cycle. It was typically seen in athletes like runners, ballet, gymnastics, the fitness sports. And they referred to it, I think, they called it the female athlete triad, 
which has the acronym of FAT, which I think is A, problematic in its own right, but B, because it was in athletes that were underweight. I, I just, wow. and we'll just call it the triad going forward. Yeah. And, but they didn't know what was causing it. And there were a lot of theories. Okay, maybe it's excessive exercise. Maybe it's being underweight. Maybe it's my favorite theory. So breast stimulation causes prolactin release and chronically elevated prolactin can actually be uh, cause infertility. One of the theories was that women's sports bras during running and jumping and stuff was overstimulating the nipples and cause. Wow. It's not true, but I just, it, again, I yeah, pick yeah, up all this weird, int- this random interesting trivia as I research <laughs> all this stuff. But kind of the more common theory at the time was low body fat, mm-hmm. right? And, and it, it made sort of a certain sense that that's why women's bodies would lose their menstrual cycle, right? At that point, they knew that kids had to hit a critical body fat percentage before they hit puberty. Mm-hmm. So it made sort of logical sense. Well, if a woman's too lean, her body can't bring a baby to term. So it, but it didn't exactly work out. You would find athletes who were very lean and still had a cycle and athletes who were carrying more body fat who didn't. So there was exactly. clearly something else right. going There's on. Because p- people with PCOS lose their cycle and well, aren't super, super lean. And that's a whole sep- that's a whole separate thing that I do. Don't let me forget to touch on that because that's actually super interesting in its own right. Okay. So finally, this researcher named Ann Lukes came along. L-O-U-C-K-S. And she's really driven the bus on all of this work. Like she really changed the paradigm. Because the point was made, okay, look, if you've got a female runner running 25 hours a week, eating too little, and who's underweight, is it one of those things? Is it all of those things? You can't separate those things out to know what's causing the problem. So she did what in science terms is called very elegant studies. And there's this concept called energy availability. And what that refers to is it's the number of calories the body has to fulfill all your biological processes, right? So as we're sitting here, our heart is doing heart things, our lungs are doing lung things, our kidney is doing kidney things. And that all takes energy. And there was an older theory that said if energy availability gets too low, your body will have to prioritize what it keeps working, right? So if your brain stops working, you die. If your kidneys stop working, bad things happen. But your immune system takes a lot of calories. Well, if we shut that down, save a bunch of calories. Right. Hair growth, actually, and nails yeah. use calories. And there's an old, it's called telogen effluvium. I have no idea why. Where people who dieted extremely hard would start to lose their hair and their nails won't grow well. I mean, yeah, you see you it, might have experienced it. You see it. it in the eating disorder community all the time. People with Because the body's does. like, okay. Yeah, because the body's like, I don't have that many calories. Well, I got to keep the brain and heart functioning. So screw your nails, right. screw your hair, screw your skin, screw your reproductive system. Right. Because that takes a ton of calories. Not to mention that in a logical sense, if a woman is not eating enough or doesn't have enough calories available to the body, getting pregnant is not a good thing mm-hmm. because you're not going to have enough calories to bring the baby to term because that takes a ton of calories. All right, so Luke's wanted to look at this in the context of women and reproductive function. Took a bunch of women and either had them eat at maintenance and do a ton of exercise or do no exercise and eat less, which is funny because it actually ties into an earlier part of this podcast. Right. Right? But she wanted to separate it out. Eat more, exercise more. She wanted to set and she created the same low energy availability. 
Right. Right. For five days. And she went super low initially. And I'll talk about numbers here in a second, although they're not that relevant for five days. And what she saw was that there was a hormonal change, something called luteinizing hormone that's involved in just reproductive cycle cyclicity, right? In terms of forming the egg, releasing the egg, et cetera, et cetera. And she saw a shift in that that would in the long term tend to cause menstrual cycle dysfunction. Now, what was interesting is that for all practical purposes, whether you ate more and did a ton of exercise or did no exercise and ate less, it's about the same. Right. Not exactly, and I don't want to get too far into the weeds on that. All right, so first you established, okay, boom, it's low energy availability. Now, I want to make it clear, energy availability is not calories in versus calories out. Right? It's not energy balance. It is defined as calorie intake minus exercise calorie expenditure, right? So once you pay for the exercise, mm -hmm. what's left is what your body has left to run itself. So it's that energy availability that is the issue. So first she showed that super low, and here's what she saw, that luteinizing hormone crashed, thyroid levels went down, cortisol levels went up. Like, it's a starvation response. All right, so then she was like, all right, let's look at this again and look at it at different levels of energy available. And it was like 50, and this is kilocalories per kilogram of lean body mass. Body fat doesn't count. It's only the lean body mass that uses these calories. Mm -hmm. And 50 is like 22 calories per pound. It's something like that. I can't do the math in my head very well because I'm an American. And <laughs> I, can, I can grab my calorie. And so she did 50, 40, 30, 20, 10. And what she found was that right about that 30 calorie mark, which is about 13.6 calories per pound, that's when the problem started. Okay. Below that level, same hormonal response, luteinizing hormone positivity, T3 dropped. This is in five days, right? I want the women listening to this. Yeah. If you create this low energy availability, you can crash thyroid levels in five days. Day. Other studies have shown it within seven. I mean, that's, women jump that's into why I have all these issues. It's from the years mm -hmm. of, of five days you know, and you just keep and, it. Yeah, I mean. Exactly. So there was this sort of this critical threshold idea. Now, again, these are short term studies, only five days. And they've done more work, sort of observational. It's not quite that cut and dry. But what you find is when they look at women with them that have lost their menstrual cycle, and this is going to be, let me make sure I phrase this correctly. All women with amenorrhea who've lost their menstrual cycle are below that threshold. All women who go below that threshold do not lose their menstrual cycle. Mm -hmm. Does that make sense? Right, because you said there's athletes who are very lean and still, you know, get their period or... Yeah, there's that. Also, many of those, again, you can... Sort of like we remember we talked about very early on, right? You can maintain at different calorie intakes and different yeah. activity levels. Yeah. A lot of those women, they're at 12%, but their energy availability is higher. So it's like going below that critical threshold does not ensure that you will lose your cycle. But if you have lost your cycle, you will be below. And they found out like 32 calories per kilogram. like it Because in the long term, your body will eventually adapt to any diet. So exactly. that, that's kind of where the disconnect comes from. There's also, without, again, getting too far into the weeds, early on, all they knew is women either had a cycle or didn't. They've now identified they're these subclinical. You can have a normal menstrual cycle called eumenorrhea. Mm -hmm. You can start to have what's called luteal phase defect, 
which means your luteal phase, the second half of the cycle is a little bit longer. Then you become anovulatory. You don't produce an egg, but you're still bleed. You like, you still think things are normal and then you lose your cycle completely. So those women below 30 who were still having a parent cycle usually show a subclinical dysfunction. So anyway, so that, that kind of answered the question was you can be at 18% body fat and have a low energy availability because you're dieting too hard and exercising too much. You can be at 12% and be maintaining and be eating enough. So that kind of explained why that difference was occurring. Mm -hmm. Um, there's actually, there's a, a really interesting case study that I, I wrote about in the women's book. It's a female runner that they tracked for like nine years, some obsessive researcher. And what she would do, would she would, during the year, she would stay at like 14, 15% body fat and eat enough to train effectively. She would go down to 12% to compete. She's a runner where lighter is better for like two or three months. And then she would come right back up. So she only ever lost her cycle for a little while. Anyway, separate. So yeah, so that's kind of the issue is that low energy availability. So in an ideal, in that, again, like we talked about, if you're eating, calories are here and activity is here, and you go, boom, <laughs> you can and drop calories and jack up activity. You can create this super low energy availability instantaneously. Right. You either have to keep activity the same and cut calories or keep calories the same. You can get away with it for short periods of time. For a couple of weeks, you can do crash diet, but that's not what right. women do. And that's they do it for months and months and months yeah. and months. And like and you said, the, the, the body adapts. And then yes. for people who have PCOS or an eating disorder, they're like, okay, I have to eat less. I have to exercise more. And that's right. the, you know. It's exactly like, where do you go from there? Yeah. So, and like I said, if you're dieting to the extremes, very light women eventually have to bring, cal you know, but it's gradual. If you look at successful physique dieters, they start at a pretty moderate 20, 30 minutes of cardio, but over six months, calories come down 100 calories every couple of weeks. They have to, to keep it going, but it's gradual rather than that. Right. So you've got that issue. And, and the solution to this sort of low energy availability of amenorrhea is to eat more and exercise less. Getting athletes to do it is very difficult, but whenever, if they just bring calories above that critical threshold in three to six months, frequently things come back to normal. Now, there's a couple other things I did in that vein. Um, hang on, I just lost one of them. Okay, so where does PCOS fit into this particular thing? Mm -hmm. So something else they would frequently see in female athletes was this, that oligomenorrhea, that extended cycle. Yeah, that's what I have. And at the time, it was thought that, ah, this is just, this can occur due to this low energy availability. But then they started looking more closely. They found that, hmm, these athletes really aren't under eating. These athletes don't have extremely low body fat. In fact, they aren't showing any of the other things that we typically see. What's going on? And they were typically seeing this in like strength power sports, like swimming, things of that nature. And somebody finally thought to look and went, oh, this isn't a low energy availability issue. These women have elevated androgen levels and have PCOS. And at the elite athletic level, women with PCOS are drastically overrepresented because that elevated testosterone, as many problems as it causes, and make no mistake it does, it's a huge advantage for female athletes because right. they build muscle better, exactly. higher bone density, gain strength. So, so yes, Pete, but they have to deal with, you know, the consequences of that. So it sort of turned out that that oligomenorrhea was less due to the calorie and the exercise issue 
there was an underlying hormonal issue that was causing that to occur, and that's generally, oh, I know what I wanted to say. So in recent years, this whole low energy availability thing has been sort of increased. The IOC decided to call it relative energy deficiency syndrome to sort of focus on the low energy availability as the major driver of it, mm-hmm. more so than the activity or the diet per se. A lot of blowback against this because women are more prone to this. And by taking female out of the name, they were afraid that it would sort of downplay the 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 importance of it in women's physiology far more so. They've seen it in male athletes, runners, uh, horse jockeys, of all things. Those guys, you, you think female, oh my God, you think female athletes are nuts? Horse jockeys are like 5'6", 110 pounds. Right, and like wrestlers. Like, um, yes, all kind of, all those sports that are that are predicated on low body, but jockeys are nuts. Yeah. So they're like, we want to include men in this, but what they've and they've sort of expanded it. It's not a. It's no longer just eating disorders. It's just low energy intake, and that can be a clinical eating disorder. It can be just not having an appetite. It can be not eating enough. Mm-hmm. Uh, menstrual cycle dysfunction, which can be one of these four different things, and then low bone mineral density, which is kind of the long the long term issue of it, and it can be. From a little bit below normal, it's called osteopenia, which is one standard deviation below to osteoporosis. Which, and they will they will see female young runners that have like the bone mineral density of ninety year olds. Like wow. it's not, and gymnasts are nightmarish. Yeah. But they've also included you find decreased recovery from activity, decreased knee, decreased immune system function. The whole system shits the bed. Is just is it, to put it in, in in technical terms, the whole system completely shifts the bed from that low energy availability. But one thing I wanted to say that also ties into this: there's not a lot of research on men, but when they've done it, if you take women and men, you put the women at 30 and the men at 30, you don't see a problem in the men. What do you mean? The 30? men can that 30 k calories per kilogram of lean body mass, that critical threshold. Okay. For men, before you start seeing issues in bone mineral density, before you start seeing issues in reproductive function, mm-hmm. they can go to 15 calories per kilogram of lean body mass. Men's systems just aren't as sensitive to any of this. So again, when you see the, the shit male athletes can get away with in terms of dieting and activity, they can get away with more. And their bodies suffer less damage. Right. They don't start losing bone till much later in the game. And they start with more bone to begin with. Women who who don't develop optimal bone mineral density, which is puberty to about mid-20s to early 30s, may never develop it, right? right? And that's a problem because we're seeing this issue in adolescent female athletes. Mm -hmm. They may be doing... Now, good luck trying to tell them when they're 15, you know, when you're 70, you're good. I mean, oh, yeah. let's when, face when it. When I was 15 and I we wouldn't listen. We wouldn't I listen. Didn't listen. I, everybody sure, said, you're gonna nobody have, did. You're going to have long-term health issues. And I was nobody like, cares. no, and now I'm sitting here, you know, with these long-term health yep. issues. But, you know, I, I, had, um, I think I've learned from my mistakes as well. And now I, I totally agree with you that, it, you know, less and that's all you can do. And focusing on protein and... If you could give the listeners who are dealing with PCOS and autoimmune issues and but they still have like they want to reach their health goal, they want to reach their body composition goals. If you could give them like a like a little Lyle plan, like, <laughs> yeah, I don't know, like it, like cause you're you're the man you're yeah. you've been through all this and just you you bring them bring them some hope and like a little Lyle plan to, to take away. 
Yeah, so it, it really, I think, just the summary is everything we've talked about is stop trying to, like, it, it makes more sense that harder is better. However, frequently harder is not only not better, it's worse. And realize that also, as you found, this is a long-term thing. Like, I get it. Everybody wants it done twice as fast. My old rule is if you're losing one pound a week, you want it to be two. If it's two, you want four. If it's four. I get it. Dieting sucks. However, you can spend months beating your head against the wall to lose nothing because you're trying to do something extreme that's not going to fit you or is causing you to binge, or is causing you to feel shitty, or is causing you health problems. Right. And you'll spend three months making no gain results. Or you can target half a pound a week, maybe a little bit more. There are ways to accelerate, but by A, you know, creating a moderate deficit, whether it's through a slight reduction in food, or a slight increase in an act, especially when you're starting. Everybody wants to do it all right off the bat, and that causes an excessive amount of stress immediately. Right. If you give your body time to adapt and get fitter, right? If you jump into an hour of hard activity right now, yeah, you'll burn some calories, and you'll feel like shit the rest of the day. Your joints will hurt. You'll hate what you're doing, and you'll probably quit. Mm-hmm. If you take the next six months, and there's actually a really good study. I, I, I should find the progression. They started, it was overweight beginners, women and men, and they, they started 100 calories six times a week. That's like 10 or 15 minutes of activity. By the six-month mark, they were up at 600 calories. But when you do it that gradually, you never notice it. So what I do with my clients. First day, I wanted them to just get through the workout and be like, oh, I can do this. The next day, I'd push them that, that much more and that much more. Right. And six weeks, later, they working, six weeks later, they're working harder than they had ever thought possible. And they never felt overwhelmed. So better to start more gradually and build into it. I would say the same start thing with, with um, reverse dieting. Do it gradually. To a degree, if you're bringing your calories back up, like if you've been at super low levels for long periods of time, to get full metabolic recovery, you need to get to maintenance. But frequently, as you're raising calories, look, just cut your activity back. If you're doing two hours of hard cardio, just go Spend two weeks going for a walk for 30 minutes. Get some activity, get some movement, go outside. And when in two weeks you feel better than you have in months or longer, you will start to see the benefit of that. So yeah. in those, unless you're going to do a short-term thing. Like if you just want to do like a two-week crash diet, that's fine. Get my Rapid Fat Loss Handbook to kickstart things. and then But you've got to move back into a more moderate approach. Like that can have its – that's a whole separate podcast. Mm-hmm. So – do what you can do, right? There's a big push right now, and I'm not a habit guy, of look, if you improve by 1% a week or a day, in a year, the, the but that's not how we think. Those small I gotta be changes, good. They, they equal such huge shifts. I mean, over time. Yeah. And I think, that's an, I think that's an age thing. When we were kids, it didn't occur to us that it was going to take two years to learn our alphabet. But when you're older, you're like... I'm getting older by the day, man. I got to get there right now. And it's like, but, but if in, in the long term that causes more harm than good, not only did you not reach your goal, it takes you even longer, right? Like if you spent six months doing stuff that fucked you up, well, you've just lost that six months. Now it's going to take you a year. Whereas if you'd done six months and eased into it, you might've, it ended up taking you longer when you fuck it up for so long. So yes. Now, there are, you know, again, you have to balance that with someone who's got a lot of body weight to lose, or a lot of body fat to lose, telling them it's going to take you a year 
that can be equally so often that's a fine medium but especially i think more almost more so with exercise like you have to ease into that if you're not used to it because the reality is exercise doesn't do that much for fat loss in the initial stage you just can't do enough diet tends to play the major role initially but start activity use diet as your body weight starts to come down your activity can start to come up and you may actually be able to eat more right rather than trying to keep eating less and less and less your activity is increasing and because of improvements in body weight self-esteem whatever it is you find yourself being more active doing more things going outside more because your activity starts to go up and up and up and you may be able to eat more and still create a nice so nice deficit yeah. as you start to improve all those metabolic functions you'll feel but all you'll feel so, better like less inflammation you feel physically and yes, emotionally and you, better and once you feel right. that even for a day you're like okay i'm feeling a little bit of progress i can do this i can do exactly these things I wrote, there's a series on my website called Training, it's called Training the Obese Beginner. I need to go back and change the language. But my goal was, with people in the gym, was to break them in without breaking them. I didn't want them walking out of there going, God. I mean, yes, there's people who are like, I want you to hurt me. But with with the average beginners that have bad exercise experiences, no, I don't want you to ever feel sore, tired, exhausted. I want you to make by six weeks, you'll be amazed at where you've gotten to. So, yes, yeah, so that's that's a big one. Um, get sufficient protein. That is really, I'll harp on this till till the end of my career. And that may be, you know, 0.7 to 1 gram per pound of lean body mass. Not total body weight. Mm-hmm. But even for most women who are frequently getting 40, 50 grams of protein, I'd love to know how much you were getting when you were, were vegan. Uh, a, probably wasn't very uh, much. And B, you're getting so many carbs like, it was too many carbs, get, yeah. If you even get that to 90 to 100 per day, it will be light. It'll, yeah, it will be life changing. Yeah. Like you can eat more than that, but a lot of women frequently don't have a taste for proteins. I'm and petite meat. too, and, so it's like, I, you know. Right, you don't need, yes, exactly. You don't need nearly as much. But mm. women, lean body mass, typically you see, you know, 90 for, for lighter women, maybe up to 100 pounds 110 unless they're athletes mm-hmm. so you know you get into that 90 100 120 grand people will go but that's so much like we talked about it's not but it helps that much hormones. chicken breast is 30 oh it helps everything yeah moderate your it, you're providing amino acids which are great for brain function as you mentioned yeah. it 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 does everything like it i've had friends who women and they're just like increasing dietary proteins like a goddamn life hack yeah, I mean, and it really it, it is, just, and, like, it changes it's, everything. it's a game changer, and mm-hmm. the, the fucking, the crazy Reddit vegans with eating disorders came for me um, when I- Oh, I, I'm sure they did. I posted it in the eating disorder recovery Reddit, which oh, no. is, uh, and I said, you know, I'm really proud of myself, this is a recovery win, because now I'm eating salmon, and I'm, I'm starting to, like, really take my recovery oh, no. seriously. It, it got to the point where the oh, moderators sure. had to- Get death threats? They had to, no, but they had to lock the- the, the post and the I'm comments sure. because all these crazy vegans, not only are they crazy vegans, they have eating disorders. So they were like, you're, you're a piece of shit. You're crazy. You're brain dead, but blah, 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 whatever. Yep. I'm proud I, of my decision. I'm happy that I'm doing it because my, my health and my healing comes first. Sure. And, and that's what it comes important. down to. And I have a friend who believes, and again, this could get very, I don't want to get into this too deeply. Who's like that veganism is frequently a, healthy outlet for people with eating for anorexics it allows them to orthorexia eat. too 
Oh God. Oh, that's a whole separate thing. So yes, get sufficient protein. And look, if you don't, if you need to use a protein powder and your gut can handle it, mm-hmm. that's don't do that exclusively. Um, it can be eggs, cheese, dairy. Like even years ago, I had clients and they would come to me and I'm like, tell me about your diet. They're like, well, breakfast is a bagel and a piece of orange juice. I'm like, you're hungry at 10 a.m., aren't you? They're like, how did you know? I'm like, it is my job to be all knowing. And I'm like, (laughs) just get some protein at breakfast. Doesn't have to be much. Put some, whatever. And they do that and go, oh my God, this is the first time I've been full till lunch. I'm like, yeah. By presenting myself as all-knowing, I had less arguments down the road. That was, I just, if they can think I'm omnipotent, I don't have to fight with them quite as much down the road. So yes, ease into your exercise, especially get sufficient protein, moderate your carbs. And actually we didn't touch on the keto thing. And I know we're going along, but I want to talk about that quick, yeah. briefly. Yeah. Even bringing, it's a, it's a happy, it's a fine medium, right? Now, some people, I don't want to say carb addicts, but when they eat carbs, they want to eat more carbs. I'm like that right? So for some people going a full-blown ketogenic diet for 30 to 50 grams of carbohydrates can be beneficial in the early stages for as much, I mean, A, it, they've studied it in response to P, regards to PCOS. And in the short term, like it gets rapid weight loss, it lowers insulin, like it can have really enormous metabolic effects. However, is it sustainable in the long term? And that's more Not debatable. For and I think not, really. not for, some people can do it and feel great on it. Some people actually feel euphoric and more energetic on it. Mm-hmm. But for others, they start to have cravings for the foods that they. And there was really hi, hi. Look at the camera. This is my new puppy. This is my new monster so puppy. So He's sixty five pounds at seven months. He's oh a monster. And and they did this really interesting paper. And they took two groups, put them both on keto, and then after some amount of time, they told one group, "Look, we want you to bring carbohydrates back in gradually." until you reach what you feel is a acceptable level for you. Like your threshold, like your personal. Correct. Like what we, what Which is really handle. funny because Atkins back in the 70s said the same thing. He called it the critical carbohydrate level. Mm-hmm. And most people ended up at about 150 grams a day, which is enough, right? Honestly, this for most people, unless you're doing two hours of heavy training per day, yeah. How many carbs do you need? That's exactly how right? I feel. <laughs> like how many carbs do you need to get through the day when we mostly sit in front of a computer and and do nothing? You just don't need that many. Mm-hmm. That but that gives you enough food variability so you can have a little, you know, and it's not that much, right? That's the other thing you mentioned underreporting, right? People especially in the 80s like when you look at how much 40 grams of like rice or pasta is, it's a depressingly low amount. But Having even 150 grams per day will sustain all but the most intense activity, give you some food variability, allow you to eat certain things. Moderate dietary fats, again, tends to help with appetite, get your healthy fats, monounsaturate some olive oil. Like, But basically, what I find is when people raise their protein, the rest of it almost corrects itself. I agree. Yeah. Um, but yes, for some people, going full-blown keto for one or two months. And again, Atkins got a lot wrong, but he in hindsight was not drilling an entirely drill well. He said, look, if you have an unbalanced physiology, and it was in the 70s, we didn't know from insulin resistance. We didn't know about any of this stuff. We, I was two. But mm-hmm. they, didn't, the re, they didn't know about any of this. They just knew that something was going on. He said, sometimes to correct an unbalanced physiology, you need an unbalanced diet. And I think, like I said, would I put it in exactly those terms? 
No, but I don't think he's drilling a dry well on that one. If you have severe insulin resistance, appetite, whatever, carbs are driving, hunger, blood sugar, all this other stuff, maybe you do have to take them all out for some period of time. Right. Yeah. yeah. We know that taste buds change. It takes about six to eight weeks. You will lose, you know, find someone who's trying to reduce their sodium intake and they'll just be like, God, this tastes, this is tasteless. And then suddenly six to eight weeks later, they're like, oh, I've known people that went keto when they try to eat something sugary afterwards. They're like, oh God, yeah, I can't do this. When I drink a, like a, a smoothie or something, I'm like, holy shit. It tastes it's like too much. Yes, it's too much. Yeah. Um, there's even some issues with the brain reward center in terms of dopamine and opioid release and how we sensitivity rewards from food mm-hmm. can get dysfunctional. Well, it's probably dysfunctional to begin with a little bit, then with obesity, it gets worse. That can start to correct itself. So people that found that they couldn't control their carbohydrate intake initially may find that two months later, they're able to bring them back in moderated amounts. Mm -hmm. So yes, for some people, like ideally, look, if you can just go to moderate carbs, that'll do most of the heavy lifting. That's where most, most people overeat high carb, high fat foods. Mm-hmm. That's, that's, that's the good stuff, right? That's, let's face it. That's the tasty stuff. Right. I'm one of the few people I know that loves jelly beans and candy corns, but I'm gross. So, <laughs> but for most people, you know, sugar and fat, always a winning combination. So if you moderate carbs, cut some of that stuff out, um, that'll do most of the heavy lifting as you find appetite and all these things. Activity comes Balance up. So out. let's sum yeah. up. So like isn't activity gradually over a number of months, bring that up, start slow, build up as you get fitter. As you get fitter, it gets easier. Right. As you get fitter and lose weight, you'll be more active the rest of the day. Mm-hmm. That actually meat can have a greater potential impact than formal exercise. Just by um, eating the fish the, the last week, mm-hmm. I've I actually do use my fitness pal just because my dietitian asked me to. Um yeah. and it's like I naturally am eating like way less carbs and my inflammation levels have gone down, but I, I yes. feel better. It's not like I'm like, yeah, I, I understand. it's not like I'm, you know, eating like no carbs and like eating no nothing, you know, like, cause people who do keto oftentimes feel like shit and they'll get the keto flu. But, um, yes, very much so. You know, I think it, it really, it, I'm honing in everything you're saying with proper protein. It, you'll feel better. You'll balance out. everything (laughs) like truly truly everything um there's actually i can't find it right now a paper came out last year that actually looked at some major i'll find an email it to you it had to do with autoimmune Mm -hmm. but it was i think they honestly want to say they pulled out a lot of some of the vegetables Mm -hmm. was it a full-blown i can't find the paper right now i was looking in the background but i'll find it but yeah there there is a lot of that stuff and i realize that being overweight is inherently an inflammatory condition food can add to that if you're insensitive to something, if you're getting a hyperinsulinemic response, that's going to drive its own set of issues because you are not tolerating carbs well. And yeah, for many people, like I said, moderate the carbs to that 40, 45%. If you need to go lower, that's fine. Again, if you're not training intensely, how many carbs do you need? Right. Most people will find that that's sort of that cutoff point for where you technically start getting, it's about 100, 120 grams a day. That's what the brain uses. When you start, like, that's kind of a critical threshold for people. And I've even talked to people that, honestly, 100 was worse for them than 30 or 150. Because 100, you're not quite getting into ketosis and adapting to ketones. Right. But you don't have enough to feel, like, it's almost worse to be on the cusp. Mm-hmm. 
Yeah, I agree because that's so, you oh know, my god, that's so true. Because I was on the cusp for a while, and I was and it's worse. Like shit, and now I'm more in the keto-ish range. Um, right, more towards like, you know, maybe like fifty to sixty, mm-hmm. and um, I'm feeling way better. So, and I think every everybody's different, but when it comes to PCOS and autoimmune, yeah. you, just, you just have to find your number. Very, very much so. And I, yes, and I think that's going to be something. I hang on, I was going to ask you, do you get a euphoria from being in ketosis? Um. Yes, but I also kind of, I have a history of disordered eating, so that also kind of goes hand in hand with me, but I just, when I feel better in my body, when I feel less inflamed, that's when I feel mentally good. So it's like a, you know, correlation with the body and the mind. Um, Yeah, I only bring that up. I've known people, there's, there's a theory paper from way back that I guess meditation actually causes the brain to uptake ketones. And the theory was kind of that a ketogenic diet was sort of mimicking some of the effects of meditation in that sense. It is very much a a hypothesis paper, but, but to your point, some people feel great on keto once they kind of adapt and get past that first couple of weeks, other people never feel good on it. And what I've actually found, and I think this sort of wraps this all up is people who are very insulin sensitive, genetically because they train a ton there is if you took two people with the same diet body fat activity level insulin sensitivity can vary about tenfold just genetically pcos women genetically insulin resistant people who are very highly insulin sensitive feel great on carbs appetites under control feel good blood sugar's good muscles get pumped people and they feel terrible on low carbs. They just, they feel their bodies are just genetically kind of set to run on carbs. By the same token, people who are insulin resistant, unless they live on nothing but vegetables, feel terrible on high carbs. Yeah. And when they reduce carbs, whether it's to moderate them or even go full-blown keto, feel, and there's some people who can switch, but they can kind of do both, but that's been my general, there's even been some research on that, that People who are insulin resistant may even lose more weight and fat on keto diets, mm-hmm. whereas people who are insulin sensitive may lose more on higher carb diets. So as a final comment, we're not there yet. In another 10 years, there's something called neutrogenomics. They're able to do, we're going to be able to do some genetic testing. And I think a huge key to this is going to be, rather than just bring the person in and giving them the diet that you personally use, believe in, sell, whatever it is. Mm-hmm. And I do this to a degree, but we're going to go, okay, we're going to look at your physiology. Okay, you're genetically insulin resistant. If I give you a high-carb diet, it's going to be terrible for you. I think we're going to get to the point, the the limited studies on that, when you set up the diet relative to that, you get better results. Based on facts, based on testing. Based on physiology. Yes, even even my treatment just, well, there's even, there's one paper setting up a diet relative to menstrual cycle fluctuations worked better than a generic because again you can't totally. fix it or stop it you have to work with it yeah, and you, you have, have to, to work with the individual's physiology activity and their psychology as much as anything if you give them a diet they hate and can't adhere to mm-hmm. they can't do that but what i was going to say as far as the genetic testing actually i, I was diagnosed with a mild bipolar in 2014 they had me take a genetic test mm-hmm. and they found that i have a marker for my brain doesn't convert folic acid to methylfolate it's called the MTHFR 
mutation, which I think is hilarious because it looks like a really nasty curse word. <laughs> I just think that's funny. Yeah, yeah. But they said you need you need to be on high dose methylfolate because genetically your body doesn't convert this well enough. And it's a huge part of mental health, it's a huge part of inflammation, homocysteine, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. So I think we're going to get to that point where we can do some biological testing or genetic yeah. testing to determine more optimality for individuals. Right now, it's a little bit of trial and error, but we've talked about a lot of the issues. Totally. I think that I may think go into, into that. And it's simple. If you eat high carb diet and you feel like shit all the time, do something else. Exactly. And if you eat a low carb diet and feel like shit all the time, try something. Like it's really, it's, and if you're, trial and if, error. If, you, if you've been training and starving yourself for six months with no results, try something else. Exactly. I don't even, and, and, but don't try doing more. Yeah. As contrary as it sounds, frequently doing less will be better. We have to and change that's probably a good habits. place to stop. Yeah, exactly. I agree. Just do, so, just do something different because yeah. it can't, it can't, you can't get, I mean, I guess you can start gaining weight, but you can't get results worse than zero. Yeah. Well, thank you, Lyle, so much. Absolutely. Thank you for having me. That was amazing. Um, we went deep and I think everybody's going to get a lot of takeaways from this. Um, I Fantastic. will put all your information in the show notes, obviously. Is, what is it? Bodycomposition.com. So yeah, just quickly, my body, my website is bodyrecomposition.com. That will take you to my store. Okay. I have a very active Facebook group also called Body Recomposition. That I, I mentioned it because...
brain fog, insomnia, moodiness, weight gain. Maybe you think they're just part of getting older, but Midi Health understands that for women over 40, they can all connect to menopause. It's at the root of dozens of symptoms we experience, not just hot flashes. Midi clinicians are menopause experts offering safe, effective, FDA-approved solutions covered by insurance. 91% of Midi patients get relief from symptoms within just two months. Book your virtual visit today at joinmidi.com.